0: welcome to the improve the news podcast for friday april 28th 2023 where we separate the spin from the facts i'm scott wallace
1: and i'm eric steiner with a look at today's top stories u.s house republicans pass a bill to raise the debt ceiling
0: she and Zelensky hold their first call since the start of the war
1: Longtime talk show host, Jerry
0: Springer, dies at age 79. An Iranian court orders the U.S. to pay $313 million for 2017 terrorist attacks. The United Kingdom House of Commons approves a controversial asylum bill. A Uyghur refugee dies after nine years of detention in Thailand. Chinese police question consultancy firm, Bain & Company staff. Tucker Carlson breaks his silence since departing Fox News. A study finds Eli Lilly's diabetes drug leads to significant weight loss. And Pope Francis gives women the right to vote at bishops' meetings. In our top story, House
1: Republicans pass a bill to raise the debt ceiling. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, Reuters, ABC News and USA Today. In an effort to spark negotiations with President Biden before the U.S. defaults on its debt, the House Republicans passed a bill by a vote of 217 to 215, with all Democrats and four Republicans voting against to raise the national debt ceiling in exchange for deep cuts in government spending. The bill would increase Washington's borrowing authority by $1.5 trillion, or until March 31st, whichever comes first. Pair spending to 2022 levels, and then cap growth at 1% a year, repeal some tax incentives for renewable energy, and stiffen work requirements for some anti-poverty programs. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office said the proposal would cut government deficits by $4.8 trillion over 10 years. While Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, told Democrats And Biden specifically, that, quote, it's up to you now. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean Pierre described the bill as cutting health care, education, Meals on Wheels, and public safety. As the bill heads to the Democrat controlled Senate, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said the legislation is dead on arrival. No one knows exactly when Congress will run out of time to expand the debt limit, though it could come as early as June or later into the months ahead. Since January, the Treasury Department has been using extraordinary measures to pay its bills as the government reached its $31.4 trillion borrowing limit. Officials estimate they could run out of options by early June.
0: All right, thanks for the facts, Eric. Let me run down our narratives, beginning with the Democratic narrative spin by Alternet. Republicans are playing a dangerous game of roulette with the economy, and Americans are going to feel pain if they don't relent. Speaker McCarthy is pushing an extreme wish list that increases costs for hardworking families without actually reducing the deficit. Spending cuts for the future won't do anything to affect what the U.S. has already spent, and claims to the contrary promote a delusion that will ultimately lead to a default. Town Hall gives us a Republican narrative
1: for this story. While Republicans are sympathetic to Americans' financial struggles, Biden continues to hide from the issue and refuses to negotiate. It's time for the president to lead by coming to the table with McCarthy and for Democrats to acknowledge their reckless spending got the U.S. into this economic mess. Tying the debt ceiling to spending levels is the only way to make the country fiscally responsible.
0: And a cynical narrative comes from ABC News. This government paralysis is just one of the many symptoms of a nation plagued by partisan games, with leaders more concerned with tearing each other down than building the country up. As both sides refuse to compromise, the U.S. is creeping closer to the edge of a default catalyzed economic crisis. Something must be done to end this deadlock. This
1: story has also generated a nerd narrative. It says there's a five percent chance the U.S. will default on its sovereign debt before 2024, according to the metaculous prediction community. Eric, you're a radio guy. You know who Dave Ramsey is. I do know who Dave Ramsey is. Financial Peace University.
0: Yes, that's right. He has a thing called the Every Dollar app, and he says if you use this app and you put in your whole budget you you feel like you gave yourself a raise cuz now you know where everything's going and it turns out you have more money than you thought when you're not wasting it right. i would suggest maybe these these uh legislators take a look at that app it's free
1: uh, you know what that's a good idea <laughs> he's really big on setting up that $1000 emergency fund too
0: oh yeah that's baby step 1 yeah $1000 emergency fund mm-hmm.
1: maybe the us should follow yeah. suit and set up the uh, <laughs> so let's put together the, together the, the one dollar. The, the $1 trillion <laughs> emergency fund
0: Next up, Xi and Zelensky hold their first call since the war began. Here are the facts as agreed upon by PBS NewsHour, CNN, The Guardian, NBC News, MSN, and The Straits Times. The leaders of China and Ukraine, Xi Jinping and Volodymyr Zelensky on Wednesday, had their first known phone call since Russia invaded Ukraine more than 14 months ago. Zelensky, who for months has expressed an interest in speaking with Xi, said he had an hour-long, meaningful phone call with the Chinese leader. He said, We discussed a full range of topical issues of bilateral relations. Particular attention was paid to the ways of possible cooperation to establish a just and sustainable peace for Ukraine. In spite of what appeared to be the biggest breakthrough for a possible peace settlement in months, Zelensky nonetheless insisted Ukraine would not give up on lost territory. Quote, there can be no peace at the expense of territorial compromises. The territorial integrity of Ukraine must be restored within the 1991 borders. Meanwhile, a Chinese readout of the call said, On the Ukraine crisis, China always stands on the side of peace. Its core stance is to facilitate talks for peace. As a permanent member of the U.N. Security Council and a responsible major country, China would not sit idly by nor would it add oil to the fire still less exploit the situation for self-gains. In a subsequent briefing, China's foreign ministry said it would send envoy Li Hui, China's former ambassador to Russia from 2009 to 2019, to Ukraine and other countries to help conduct in-depth communication with all parties to achieve a political settlement. The statement did not explicitly outline whether Li would travel to Russia. Later in the day, White House National Security spokesman John Kirby called the development, quote, a good thing, but added, whether that's going to lead to some sort of meaningful peace movement, a plan, or proposal, I don't think we know that right now. Meanwhile, on Thursday, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said, We are ready to welcome anything that could hasten the end of the conflict in Ukraine and Russia, achieving all the goals it has set itself. As for the fact that they communicated, that is a sovereign matter for each of these countries and a question of their bilateral dialogue.
1: Scott, thank you for the update. And our first spin is a pro-China narrative coming from Global Times. In contrast to the actions of Western countries, which have added fuel to the fire and dragged out this war by continually supplying Ukraine with weapons, China's desire to remain impartial while seeking to promote a just peace settlement demonstrates good governance. Dialogue and negotiations are the only way to end this tragedy and China hopes that all parties meaningfully engage in this process to end this war.
0: Cross that with the anti-China narrative from The Guardian. Despite China's claims of impartiality, it has only bolstered its ties with Russia throughout this conflict. This ploy of pretending to care about a peace settlement gives China cover while it continues to pursue its relationship with Moscow. This does not reflect serious efforts to bring the war to a close.
1: According to a nerd narrative, there's a 20% chance that there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukraine conflict before 2024. That's coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. Uh, what do you think about the impartial uh, Lee Hui uh, try to allow the other parties to step back and kind of see what's going on? What yeah, do you it think? almost
0: seems like he's like a, a mediator. Like, yeah, like it's yeah. okay to talk to me about this. I understand I understand Putin can't talk to Zelensky directly, so maybe right, right. So he's if like If you a can talk to me, I can talk to him, and then you can talk to me, and then I'll talk to him. Uh, I was going to say it reminds me of when in the American Revolution, Ben Franklin wasn't you know an elected official or anything. We weren't even a no. country yet, but we kind of sent him over to Europe to kind of you know smooth things out over there, maybe rally a little support. You know, I I think that like unofficial diplomat an important position like I, I don't know who that is for our country right now for a right. while it was dennis rodman going over to, to, yeah. to, north, korea. to north korea yeah but, <laughs> now maybe that's not the best choice maybe you should aim a little higher than a yeah. uh, you know a, a guy that can pull down 20 rebounds a game but the <laughs> uh but i think that's important maybe the guy who doesn't make the decisions but has the ear of the guy that makes the decisions you know yeah someone uh, that has, I, has a little
1: stroke it. Longtime talk show host Jerry Springer has died at 79. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, ABC News, The Guardian, and Breitbart. Jerry Springer, the former politician turned host of the controversial The Jerry Springer Show, died on Thursday in suburban Chicago at the age of 79. His death was confirmed by Gene Galvin, a family friend and executive producer of Springer's podcast. Springer was born in London in 1944 to parents Richard and Margot, German Jews who fled to England to escape the Holocaust. At just a few years old, the family moved to Queens, New York. He studied political science at Tulane University and later received a law degree from Northwestern University. He was elected to the Cincinnati City Council in 1971, but resigned three years later after confessing to soliciting a prostitute. Running as a liberal, he was re-elected in 1977, after which the council picked him to be the city's mayor for one year. The Jerry Springer Show, which first aired in 1991 as an issue-oriented program, began producing salacious content in 1993. The show, which came to be known as a chair-throwing and expletive-filled program, aired more than 4,000 episodes before coming to an end in 2018. At its peak, it was a ratings powerhouse and even topped Oprah Winfrey's show. Funeral and memorial services are reportedly still being planned, but his family has asked the public to consider honoring him by donating to a worthy advocacy organization or simply being kind to someone.
0: All right, we have a narrative A on this story from the LA Times. Through his wit and intellect, Jerry Springer was able to lead an extraordinary career in politics and show business. He opened a new door into what entertainment could be, and his vision was vindicated by years of successful ratings. He also understood the importance of treating people with respect and separating his political views from what he aired on TV. His closing remarks to each episode, to take care of yourselves and each other, exemplified his status as a man and how he lived his life.
1: Independent brings us Narrative B. Even Springer himself has apologized for participating in the degeneracy of his show. In his own words, he ruined the culture. While he may have been thrown into the sensationalized culture of Hollywood without knowing what he was getting into, the Jerry Springer show launched a new era of TV lawlessness and decadence before millions of viewers.
0: You know, on an unrelated note, we're going to have a, a new Improve the News Too Hot for TV VHS tape. You can call the number on the screen right now and, you know, get you know, see the stuff that we weren't able to leave, you know, on the air. Do you remember that Too Hot for TV? It was all over yes. the commercials. There was <laughs> yeah. the Jerry Springer Too Hot for TV. Yes. I remember I finally saw it because I didn't know, You know what's going to be – I was – what was that in like nineteen ninety eight or something. I was fifteen. So it was like, what is this gonna be? Like this is gonna be I don't even know what it's gonna be. It's gonna be it's too hot for TV. Could be anything. <laughs> and I remember I saw it eventually and it was I mean it was just more Jerry Springer show. I mean, you know, which is what it is. It wasn't it wasn't uh anything mind blowing unfortunately. Right. So, so you can save your nineteen ninety nine everybody <laughs> but but rest in peace to honestly a giant in the in the industry.
1: Yo, absolutely I like I I enjoyed Jerry I enjoyed Jerry Springer, but not really his show. Like it wasn't it wasn't really for me.
0: He was almost a victim of his own success. They accidentally hit upon a formula that worked so well that there was no way they couldn't keep there was doing no, it over and yeah, over again.
1: Th- yeah, there was no turning back. Um, I mean, it was too successful.
0: Shifting gears to the Middle East, an Iran court orders the US to pay three hundred thirteen million dollars for the twenty seventeen attacks. Here are the facts from The Washington Post, Jurist, Al Jazeera, The Times of Israel, Press TV, and the Associated Press. On Wednesday, an Iranian court ordered the U.S. government and eight U.S. officials and entities, including former presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama, as well as the CIA, to pay $312.95 million over the 2017 twin attacks in Tehran. The 55th branch of the Tehran Court of Justice's ruling, based on complaints by families of the victims, aims to prevent what it called further U.S. violations of international law and accuses the U.S. of being complicit in the creation of terrorist groups, including the Islamic State. According to the court's verdict, nine American entities must pay $9.95 million in material damages to the plaintiffs, in addition to $104 million in moral, and $199 million for punitive damages. However, the court didn't specify how the compensation order will be executed. The court claims to have cited reliable news published in U.S. media about the defendant's alleged role in organizing and directing terrorist groups and unidentified speeches of high-ranking U.S. officials as evidence to support its judgment. In June 2017, two simultaneous I.S.-claimed terrorist attacks— on Iran's high-security parliament and the Imam Khomeini mausoleum killed at least 17 people and wounded 50 others. The ruling comes after the International Court of Justice rejected Tehran's bid to unlock Iran's central bank assets worth at least $2 billion, frozen by U.S. authorities, and as tensions between the two nations remain high over Tehran's advancing nuclear program. Thank you,
1: Scott, for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Washington Post. Tehran's false claim that the U.S. is in cahoots with IS is outrageous. No direct evidence supports the court's ruling, which is an obvious attempt to get even following numerous legitimate orders passed by U.S. courts over the years that have held Iran accountable for orchestrating terrorist attacks on foreign soil the U.S. must push back against Iran's subversive activities that attempt to create an anti-American axis across the region and destabilize the global order.
0: And we have an establishment critical narrative from The Guardian. While the U.S. may not have directly ordered the 2017 attacks, in an effort to advance its global hegemony, it made conditions in the Middle East ripe for terrorism, as seen in Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan, where many citizens continue to suffer the consequences of the U.S.'s farce war on terror the U.S. government must own up to its role in the 2017 attacks and, more importantly, recognize that it's the incubator of terrorism, not the cure.
1: Metaculous Prediction Community has a nerd narrative. It says there's a 49% chance that Iran will possess a nuclear weapon before
0: 2030. It'd be tough to argue that the U.S. doesn't have a hand in some conflict somewhere in the world at all times, basically. It just depends on how many
1: cameras are on us. I mean,
0: you, you have to. F- that's oh. true. <laughs> I mean, you know, they say, "What is that rule?" Too bad Max isn't here right now. You know, they say, "You know, just observing a particle changes the way it behaves." Yeah. I think with all the cameras, I think that's that's true. I and mean, it's true. <laughs> right. I know it's true anyway. But observing something changes how it behaves, and and with cameras, everything's being observed. So we're know, all crazy. Right? We are all crazy. <laughs>
1: In our next story, the United Kingdom House of Commons approves a controversial asylum bill. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, ABC News, The Guardian, BBC News, Reuters and Sky News. On Wednesday, the UK's House of Commons voted 289 to 230 in favor of the controversial illegal migration bill after the British government adopted several amendments from conservative lawmakers, despite criticism from the UN and refugee organizations. The bill, which prevents asylum seekers crossing the English Channel in small boats from entering the UK, now proceeds to the House of Lords, which can only amend or delay the bill. The vote came despite criticism from leading Conservatives such as Theresa May. The former Prime Minister claimed that the bill would result in modern slavery and human trafficking increases, condemning the government's attempts to tackle the problem as a slap in the face. To address the concerns of some of its lawmakers, the government introduced a new amendment to define safe and legal routes for migrants to the UK, as well as granting greater leeway to challenge European court rulings. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak had made ending cross-channel migration a priority for his government. And the new bill stipulates that anyone arriving in small boats will be barred from claiming asylum and either deported to their home country or designated partner countries. Defending the legislation, Home Security Suella Braverman claimed on Wednesday that the behavior of many people arriving in the UK via small boats was at odds with British values and that
0: criminality was very closely linked to their arrival. The establishment critical spin comes from TRT World. This inhumane law violates the UN Refugee Convention, which betrays so-called Western values. However, the UK is only the most prominent example of how Western countries buy their way out of their humanitarian obligations by turning poor and undemocratic countries like Rwanda into offshore dumping grounds for asylum seekers. This disgraceful practice underlines yet again that the West has lost any right to portray itself as the champion of human rights.
1: Jersey Evening Post gives us a pro-establishment narrative. The bill is essential simply because the uncontrolled flow of migrants threatens to undermine Britain's national security. Critics of the reform are posing as generous humanitarians without offering a solution to the social woes caused by the influx. Additionally, the number of conflicts in the world is increasing, underscoring the need to revise international refugee agreements. If the UK is to remain a peaceful, multi-ethnic nation, reasonable and responsible action
0: must be taken now. I drove one time from Reno, Nevada to Salt Lake City. Let yeah. me tell you, there's plenty of room out there. Holy, there's nothing out yeah. there. There's the, you drive by a prison, Lovelock Prison, where they yeah. have OJ right now, and that's yeah. about it for like 10 hours. Like, There's room. Now, yeah. I don't necessarily know if you want to live out in the salt flats, but just for example, there's room out there for, for people. I think there's got to be some way to figure this out. Now, I'm not the one to do it. I just got an expensive <laughs> microphone, and that's that's what I bring to the table. But someone can figure this out. S- someone, yeah. There's plenty of room out there. Is I thought OJ was free. Is he not free? I oh, oh he was... no, he is now. Right? No, oh, no, yeah. he is now. But yeah, that's, where he that's where he was. That's where he was. Yeah, yeah. At the time when I drove by, and in, he in was there. 2010. He was right. there in Lovelock. Yeah. And uh, but it was uh, you know there's there's room for everybody. Yeah, that's at least. crazy. Believe me. You're right. Yeah, he's playing golf in Florida right now, and he's on TikTok. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) A Uyghur refugee dies after nine years of Thai detention. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by the Newsmill, Vice, Al Jazeera, The Washington Post, and the Associated Press. Following the reported death of a second asylum seeker from China's Muslim Uyghur minority in Thai custody within two months, human rights groups urged Thailand on Thursday to improve conditions in its immigration detention facilities. Last Friday, 40-year-old Matadi Matterson died of suspected liver failure shortly after being taken to a hospital in Bangkok weeks after falling ill, prompting Human Rights Watch to call for an end to the Thai government's inhumane and counterproductive policy of indefinitely detaining people accused of violating immigration law. Also known as Mohammed Tursan, He was one of the 350 Uyghurs, including children, who were detained by Thai authorities in March 2014 as they were traveling to Malaysia after fleeing China. This death comes just two months after 49-year-old Aziz Abdullah, another Uyghur asylum seeker, died in the same detention center from a reported case of pneumonia. Both men were reportedly transferred to the center in July last year. Matadi is the fifth Uyghur asylum seeker to die in a Thai detention facility in the past nine years. A 29-year-old man died of cancer at a Thai detention facility in 2018 after being detained there for four years, and two Uyghur children died in 2014, according to local media. Accurate statistics about the number of people being held for violating immigration laws in Thailand are reportedly difficult to access, There were reportedly 1,600 detainees in Bangkok in March 2021 due to the COVID pandemic.
1: Thank you for the facts, Scott. Our first spin is an anti-China narrative coming from HRW. Uyghurs who are already oppressed in China continue to face oppression in neighboring countries as they flee the PRC. Refugees are being subjected to inhumane conditions in Thai detention facilities. Thailand has even sent Uyghur refugees back to China for them never to be heard from again. The unjust refugee and migration system must be reformed, and Beijing's policies must be questioned.
0: Global Times brings us a pro-China narrative. Uyghurs leaving China has nothing to do with the fabricated oppression they face in China. All the claims about forced labor and the concern for human rights were invented by figures rabidly opposed to China in the U.S. Uyghurs live good lives in China and any that exit the PRC make that choice due to other considerations.
1: Narrative C comes from Thai PBS World. Thailand's future elections may be a good opportunity for refugee advocates to advance their political objectives. Thailand is facing a migration crisis from multiple countries with refugees pouring in from China and Myanmar, and migrant workers streaming in from Cambodia and Laos. The next Thai government will hopefully prioritize human rights for migrants. Besides contributions to the economy, migrants should have a path to naturalization, which are all possible policies in the future.
0: And we have a nerd narrative. The Metaculous community predicts that there's a 15% chance that the U.N. will open an investigation or otherwise intervene on the issue of the Xinjiang internment camps before the year 2024.
1: Chinese police questioned Bain and Company's staff. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Al Jazeera, and CNN. On Thursday, U.S. consultancy firm Bain & Company confirmed that Chinese police visited its office in Shanghai, which has been open in the city's central business district since 2004 and questioned staff. The Boston-based company declined to comment beyond saying it was cooperating with authorities, though the Financial Times has reported that police took away computers and phones. This surprise visit, which reportedly occurred two weeks ago, comes after Chinese authorities raided the Beijing office of U.S. due diligence from Mintz Group and detained five local staff. China has also suspended Deloitte's operations in Beijing for three months and levied a fine against the Big Four accounting firm. According to a survey of foreign executives released Wednesday by the American Chamber of Commerce in China, Sino-U.S. tensions are the biggest worry for U.S. companies this year with almost 9 in 10 saying they were pessimistic or slightly pessimistic about U.S.-China relations. While China's cybersecurity watchdog last month announced a probe into the security of products made by U.S. memory chipmaker Micron Technology, the new premier Li Chang has sought to reassure businesses that the country is open for business after the pandemic. Such moves are seen as retaliation for U.S. restrictions on chipmaking exports to China, with 68% of companies polled citing Sino-U.S. tensions and other geopolitical risks as the main reason for foreign employees refusing China-based assignments.
0: All right, thanks for that rundown, Eric. We have an anti-China narrative from Forbes. As Beijing grows increasingly aggressive toward the U.S. and its regional allies like Taiwan, it's important for American businesses to follow the government's lead in diversifying away from China and into safe markets. China is trying to use industry, particularly technology and chip manufacturing, to rival Western economies and militaries, which is why a joint public-private operation to deter Chinese expansion is more important than ever. Global Times
1: brings us a pro-China narrative. Solely out of its superficial fear of losing its role as the only global superpower, the U.S. has worked to antagonize China and persuade its Western allies to cut their economic ties as well. Since Washington has chosen to threaten the economic and national security of China, it's only right for Beijing to focus on building the strongest defense it can. The government has a duty to ensure U.S. businesses and its military are not attempting to injure the interests of the Chinese people.
0: And a grim nerd narrative from Metaculus saying that there's a 20% chance that there will be a U.S.-China war by the year 2035. Are you a prepper, Scott? (laughs) No, uh, honestly, a little bit. Like, I'm an amateur prepper. I have a bug-out bag. I do have a bug-out bag. Okay. But that's more about, like, if I my wife gets too mad at me than if uh. China attacks. You know? Okay. Because <laughs> I don't want to not have a phone. I don't want to get kicked out of the house without a phone charger and a change of underwear. You know what oh, I mean? Oh, I
1: understand. I understand. Yeah.
0: And turning to the media, Tucker Carlson breaks his silence after his Fox departure. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Independent, USA Today, The Associated Press, New York Post, The Hill, and Daily Mail. Two days after surprisingly parting ways with U.S. cable network Fox News, Tucker Carlson broke his silence, posting a video on Twitter that instantly topped Fox's primetime show by generating 1.8 million views in less than an hour, and 57.8 million as of Thursday afternoon. Carlson did not mention Fox or his departure, but he used his two-minute, 16-second video to rail against the mainstream media, both major political parties, and the overall state of American discourse. He said one of the things he noticed when you step away from the noise for a few days is how nice some people are and how hilarious some people are, adding that most debates on television are unbelievably stupid and will be forgotten in five years. The conservative pundit added that the mainstream political dialogue also omits, if not prohibits, discussions of undeniably big topics that will define our future, including war, civil liberties, emerging science, demographic change, corporate power and natural resources. The former top primetime host Post came just hours after The New York Times reported that Carlson allegedly wrote disparaging messages about Fox leadership. The information was obtained from the now-settled defamation suit brought by Dominion Voting Systems against Fox News. The allegedly vulgar messages are said to have been the last straw for the news giant that paid the $787.5 million settlement last week. Carlson was Fox's top host, drawing an audience of 3.3 million people per night, with new 8 p.m. host Brian Kilmeade drawing about half at $1.7
1: Those were the facts, and here's our first spin. It is a right narrative coming from the post-millennial. Tucker Carlson delivered two powerful messages to Fox News and the, and the American political establishment with his short and sweet Twitter video. The first involved the actual substance of his message, which acknowledges the depressing and absurd state of American politics. The other message was to Fox News, as Tucker's post received more views in one hour Than the new Fox primetime show. Tucker's reach has only been amplified and he will continue to speak truth to power with or without Fox News.
0: And the left narrative comes from Slate. Tucker Carlson released a very strange video on Twitter after his embarrassing exit from Fox News. The right wing host's comments may seem vague and vapid at first glance, but there is a sinister meaning behind them. Fox News' demographic is dominated by seniors, making them unlikely to follow Carlson to less mainstream digital outlets. Carlson knows this and used his brief video to court extremists with far-right dog whistles as he becomes more unhinged. Eric, I saw a video on TikTok. This was a couple weeks ago before he was off the network, and I don't know how old this footage is, but Tucker Carlson was fishing in Central Park, apparently in some pond where they allow you to fish, and a guy was recording him and Tucker Carlson comes over and kind of questions this guy you know why are you recording me and the guy was ready for Tucker to get mad at him and Tucker maybe being savvy or maybe just being you know an alright guy instead of getting mad he kind of just like chatted with the guy about fishing and it was like a really good human interaction and mm-hmm. uh, it appeared really authentic and and I remember watching that like a week ago and thinking ah, I'm gonna watch a little Tucker and then of course he's off the air the next day so <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I'm, I, I, sorry, well, there everybody. You go. <laughs> Melissa made the point uh, a couple days ago when we reported his departure. I mean, we, we could use a Monday host, quite frankly. We, we here definitely here could. To the news, Absolutely. So. <laughs> yeah. Wait, Hey, wait a minute. I'm the Monday host. Hey. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> at least you got more notice than Tucker did before we you're let you right. go. are right.
1: You're right. You're right. According to a study, a diabetes drug leads to significant weight loss. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, Eli Lilly and Company, Reuters, CNN, Fierce Pharma, and T.D. Cohen. On Thursday, Eli Lilly, makers of terzepatide, approved to treat type 2 diabetes under the name Monjoro, announced the results of their study, claiming the injectable drug helped obese people with diabetes lose weight and reduce their blood sugar. The trial evaluated more than 900 adults with obesity and type 2 diabetes over a 72-week period. Patients on a 15-milligram dose of Manjaro lost an average of 15.7% of their body weight, while those on a 10-milligram dose achieved an average weight reduction of 13.4%. About 86% of patients in the trial who took a 15-milligram dose lost at least 5% of their body weight, compared with 30.5% of placebo patients. Nearly 82% of people taking the 10-milligram dose achieved at least 5% weight loss. Though it has not yet been peer-reviewed or published in a medical journal, Lilly expects the drug to get fast-track approval from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to sell Manjaro for chronic weight management. Lilly has registered a new Phase 3B trial that will pit Manjaro against Novo Nordisk's weight-loss drug Wegovi in 700 patients who have obesity or are overweight with weight-related health conditions. The company expects to complete the study in February 2025. Last year, industry analysts predicted that the global obesity drug market could reach $30 billion by 2030.
0: All right, thanks for the facts on this heavy story, Eric. Narrative A comes from AP News. Like blood pressure, obesity should be viewed as a chronic disease that can be managed with medication. Research has shown that merely relying on diet, exercise, and willpower does not reduce body weight substantially. Since it targets the digestive and chemical pathways that underlie obesity, Manjaro could set a new bar for weight loss and help nearly 42% of all adults who qualify as obese in the U.S.
1: Washington Post gives us Narrative B. Drug makers are trying to capitalize on increased consumer demand for weight loss miracles. As it is designed to activate hormones that regulate blood sugar, delay digestion, and suppress appetite, Manjaro may further perpetuate a dangerous diet culture that idealizes weight loss in slim bodies if the FDA approves it for weight management. People should stay clear of drugs that override human metabolism.
0: Narrative C comes from the National Review. Obesity isn't just a cosmetic concern. It is a complicated issue that needs more than medication. To reverse the obesity epidemic, the federal government must be willing to take concrete action because the alternative is to normalize it as an irreparable health issue, allowing big pharma to reap billions off the obesity gold rush.
1: Metaculous Prediction Community is giving us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 50% chance that at least 71.2% of Americans will be obese or overweight in the year
0: 2030. I tell you what, it's amazing how often, if you look back in history, uh, how many drugs ended up being used for something that they weren't originally thought of. Like, For, for instance, the famous one, Viagra, was supposed to be a heart pill, and then right. it had this weird side effect, and they were like, wait a minute, we can, we can work with this. What's Viagra used for now? Our final story, the Pope, allows women to vote at bishops' meeting. Here are the facts as agreed upon by PBS NewsHour, NPR Online News, Reuters, Sky News, BBC News, and the Associated Press. Pope Francis has approved historic changes to the norms governing the Synod of Bishops. This will see women given the right to vote at the next scheduled bishops' meeting for the first time in October this year. The Synod, which is the papal advisory body, announced on Wednesday that the new rules will permit five religious sisters' voting rights although men will still cast the majority of the votes. In previous meetings, women were only allowed to attend as observers. The world's bishops have been summoned to Rome by popes for weeks at a time to debate various topics since the 1960s. Pope Francis has also decided to appoint 70 non-bishop voting members to the Synod as well, and has asked for half to be women. The Synod has commonly been attended by approximately 300 people, the 70 priests, religious sisters, deacons, and lay Catholics to be selected by the Pope come from a list of 140 candidates by National Bishops' Conferences. Kate McElwee, a member of the Women's Ordination Conference, stated that the decision was a significant crack in the stained glass ceiling and that the result was due to the sustained advocacy by women's groups demanding the right to vote. Regarding the decision, Cardinal Jean-Claude Hollerich, a senior organizer of the Synod, called the decision an important change for the Roman Catholic Church, while affirming that the move was not a revolution.
1: Thank you, Scott. Our first spin is a left narrative coming from LA Times. The decision reflects the Pope's hope to allow women a greater say in the activities of the Catholic Church. While there is some unease concerning Francis's desire for inclusivity, change is normal in life and in history. Pope Francis has taken the step of doing more than any other predecessor to give women a greater say in the church's decision-making.
0: And a right narrative comes from the Washington Times. Pope Francis's decisions are dangerous, attempting to transform the church into a secular democracy. Power is being snatched away from bishops, and the changes are in no way rooted in scripture and tradition. Pope Francis is up to his old tricks again, and there are echoes of liberal socialism in moves like this.
1: There's a nerd narrative as well, saying there's a 50% chance that the Roman Catholic Church will permit the ordination of female clergy by, by January of 2100, and that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, April 28th, 2023.
0: Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ.
1: For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the
0: News.